Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, uh, we hope you're in a comfortable position. Have your favorite beverage in hand to enjoy the discussion. We want to thank our audience uh, for questions coming from JT, Levi B, Mo K, Eric H, Andrew C, Brent B, and Rob C. So today we have George Glazier on the line today. George is Director, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Western Uranium and Vanadium. Western is listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol WUC and on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol WSTRF. George, welcome. Uh, thank you, Andrew. George, so give us your background going back before you became involved with the uranium business and then taking us all the way until today. Well, that goes back a ways. <clears throat> before I got in the uranium business, that was back in the <clears throat> late 70s. Uh, I graduated. I've got a JD. I'm a licensed lawyer in Colorado. I went to work for a company that had a copper mine in, in Utah, uh, among other assets. Uh, and then I got into the uranium industry with an individual who was setting up a private company. And that company was Energy Fuels Nuclear, became the largest uh, uranium producer in the United States, almost twice as big as any other company. That company was sold in uh, 1991. Uh, of course, uranium prices had dropped from the high, you know, about $43 in some sense, and it dropped consistently after Three Mile Island down to the range of $10 or lower. And so we sold the company for the value of the contracts. I put together all the properties, I, and then I took over the marketing of energy fuels nuclear. We had contracts throughout the world, Asia, Europe, and of course throughout the U.S. Uh, once, <clears throat> once we sold that company, I basically got out of the industry for a while because the prices were depressed. In 2005, I formed another company, and I named it also Energy Fuels. Took it public on the Toronto Stock Exchange Z uh, in 2006. Uh, so that was my second go-around with it. I stayed with that company until 2010 as uh, president and CEO. And then I left that company. I'm still a shareholder of Energy Fuels. Uh, got out of the business for another period of time and then came back in. Uh, as a private company purchasing certain assets from energy fuels. So that formed the basis of when we went public with Western Uranium. So that's basically Western Uranium. The second uh, tranche of assets with Western came when we actually went public on the Canadian Stock Exchange by acquiring an Australian company called Black Range Minerals. Uh, those assets today, the Black Range acquisition and the original purchase from energy fuels comprise the assets, the resource assets of, of Western uranium today. Okay. So so for those who uh, might not be familiar with the company, give us a quick overview of the management team, the share structure, executive compensation, and the key projects at Western. Well, Western is, is very tightly held, but it also is management. We've got, our, of course, our chief financial officer is Rob Klein. Uh, he works out of New Jersey. Myself, I work out of Colorado, uh, close to the mines. And we have a part-time operations guy who I hired for you know, energy fuels. Uh, he works part-time taking care of the mines that are all <clears throat> on standby now. Our share structure is pretty tight. We have a little over 25 million shares outstanding. Uh, warrants and options add to that, but you know, pretty tight structure. I own about 18% of the outstanding shares. Uh, management, just a small amount beyond that. So we're fairly uh, tightly held as far as our, you know, you can look it up on the public records. Uh, my compensation is $15,000 a month. Rob Klein is $10,000 a month. And our part-time operation guy is five thousand a month. So that's that's the extent of our our employees. Uh, to the extent we need other things done, we hire contractors. So we don't employ other people at this point. Eventually, we will, of course. We've lined up additional people to come on board when we go into production. Okay. And and what about key projects? 
Well, of course, the key projects are are the mines that we acquired from Energy Fuels, which were permitted mines. Uh, the Sunny Mine Complex is a complex of five mines. It was operated as recently as 2009. It was operated by Denison before uh, Energy Fuels acquired the, the property. So that's the project that will probably come on first, simply because it's a very large project with five mines. Uh, and that's the project we announced recently. We intended to open early next year. We have two other properties that are permitted mines. One is called the Van 4, and the other one is the Sage Mine. Sunday Mine okay. Complex is in Colorado. The Van 4 is in Colorado, and the Sage is in Utah. So you've mentioned uh, a possible reopen. Um, what uh, what what date do you have a date in mind of when you guys are going to open? I hear it might be somewhere between six and eight months from now. Is that a really a firm uh, date at this point? Well, to reopen the mine, <clears throat> we expect to to reopen the mine to go in and assess the very high grade vanadium resource. We expect to do that towards the end of the first quarter of 2019. So probably March, maybe April, we should have the mine open. You know, we're not going to be producing because there's going to be a period of time where we go in and do an assessment. It's not exactly exploration. We are going to do some underground drilling, but assess the, the high-grade uranium vanadium ore that is in the mine that was left from the very beginning when Union Carbide started the mine. Production would follow then, obviously, after a period of defining what's there and obtaining you know, a long-term contract, or not long-term, but two- or three-year contract to sell the product at a reasonable price. You don't want to start the mine and start with the expectation of getting $20 for vanadium and then it falls to five. So obviously we will need to base load the mine with contracts for vanadium. Sure. Well, yeah, and we'll get into that in a moment. There's some other questions related to that. So, so George, as you probably know, we've covered Uran uh, Western uh, in our nuclear energy report. And as a result, we have a number in the audience who are very curious as to the current status of Western and your plan going forward. With that, uh, you know, we're hoping uh, the, the discussion will be a good place to, to come out and, and give uh, some updates and some information uh, on a number of uh, matters for the audience. So regarding, uh, uh, kind of switching gears for a moment, regarding Pinion Ridge, uh, what is the expected time frame to potentially resolve the licensing issue there? And proceeding to possibly construction and processing of any materials out of that location? Well, if you look at the public announcements and what's available with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, that license was revoked earlier this year as a result of a lawsuit. Now, that license basically, you know, the, the judge in that lawsuit, if you go back and look at the record, it came out after after a lengthy period of time after it was brought in, you know, there was reasons that it took so long. Probably the health of that judge was one of those reasons. But he finally ruled on it, and he basically said there's some deficiencies in, in the license. Now, if you remember, Energy Fuels uh, obtained the license and then sold the mill project to myself and some investors. The Pinion Ridge Mill is not part of Western. It never has been part of Western uranium, vanadium. Uh, it was sold after we acquired the first assets, and I can explain why we didn't put the mill in initially. But uh, the judge found that there were several deficiencies in the license, and he says, absent, and this is the key word, absent an additional hearing, the license should be revoked. So we went to the, the CDPHE and said, yes, let's have another hearing. We can, we can satisfy the deficiencies in the license with another hearing. Well, the CDPHE refused to give us a hearing, said he just simply said absent another hearing. He didn't order a hearing, so they basically revoked the license and said start over. So that's where the license stands. Uh, so Western doesn't have any interest in it. Western doesn't intend to start over. Uh, now, the, the project, you know, is, is, in my opinion, you know, there's no reason to start over. Uh, at this point, okay. you know, Energy Fuel spent a great deal of money, you know, obtaining the license in the first place. Now, do you want to start over in the same area and fight the same battles? I don't, but maybe somebody does. But quite frankly, I don't think that mill is going to be built in that site. I, I think there'll be another one built, but it won't be in Colorado. You know, there are better states okay. <laughs> to build the uranium mill. You know, on, on that subject, is there is there any looking right now as far as uh, from Western? Is there another location and some potential uh 
other sites uh, that you're looking at? Well, of course, Western's always looking for <clears throat> alternatives and, and, and how to proceed, you know, with production over the long term. And so we are definitely looking at site. I can't tell you that we've pinned anything down, but, you know, any company that intends to be into production for a number of years should be looking at, <clears throat> you know, producing at their own own facilities. You know, there may be other alternatives in the short term, but the long term, you always make more money if you own your own processing facilities. So that's certainly something that we, I'm sure other companies are looking at it too, but we, Western is. Okay. So some other, other states, probably a little more friendly for licensing purpose, such as maybe Utah, is, is probably a good idea. Uh, yeah, there's certainly, you know, you can look at, you know, the various states, and they've got to be within a reasonable distance. I don't want to be in a, can't go to Alaska, it's too far away, but, you know, certainly Wyoming, Utah, maybe another state or two would be, you know, certainly within the range where we could consider it. So, so related to, you know, uh, finding a mill, a mill location, uh, what do you see um, as, a rough dollar estimate uh, to build a suitable mill to meet Western's needs for processing uranium and vanadium. Well, you know, uranium and vanadium, but, you know, if you build first just a vanadium processing plant, which might be the plan, then you have a vanadium plant. Uh, vanadium would be considerably easier to license than the uranium just because of the regulations. So you might just build a, a vanadium processing plant. So again, it, it's the size that you build, obviously, that dictates the cost. Now, just to give you an example, uh, I don't know if this is public information, but it's really not private, but the Pinion Ridge Mill was designed for 500 tons a day and licensed for 500 tons a day. And the estimated cost by the engineers was about $120 million to build it. Okay, That was a uranium-vanadium uh, processing plant. So, you know, if you build 500 tons a day, that, that cost estimate probably still valid. You know, items like steel and concrete and labor haven't gone up much since then. So, you know, again, I don't have a current estimate, but you can, you can relate to 500 tons a day. Now, maybe we don't build 500 tons a day. Maybe we build something smaller because we don't need 500 tons a day. So you build something to meet your needs for your, you know, your production as it starts. You may expand later. But initially, I don't think we need that capacity. We could, you know, get by with considerably less capacity to start with. Now, if you build uh, a fourth of the capacity, you're probably more than a fourth of the cost, but you're certainly not half of the cost. And these things, you know, will be, you know, <clears throat> considered by Western, you know, as we move down the road. But, you know, there's, there's a substantial capital cost in building anything. Right. No, and it, and it makes sense that you can you can step out and 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 start small and and work your way up as the environment uh, and the contracts improve and and you get more certainty of of a future road. Um, so so moving on, I pr appreciate the information on that. Moving on, so as you know, Energy Fuels has explicitly stated that no agreements have been reached for toll milling at White Mesa. What is the relationship with Energy Fuels? And what is needed to get to an agreement, and, and how do you think that's going to be accomplished? Well, when we first bought the properties in 2014, we had a tolling agreement with Energy Fuels, uh, and it, it was a three-year agreement. Uh, but we didn't utilize that agreement because the uranium and vanadium prices were too low. Of course, the mill wasn't operating, and, and with low prices, you know, we did not elect to mill, and they didn't elect to start it. So, I mean, we could have milled during that period of time, but we didn't. So that contract terminated uh, after three years. <clears throat> we've, we've talked to Energy Fuels about arrangements to go at the White Mesa Mill. We have not reached an agreement. Uh, whether we can, I don't know. I, I heard or read uh, Mark Chalmers' comments that he had with your interview, saying they've got maybe other things they want to use the mill for. Uh, I understand that. The first company that I was with built that mill, if you'll recall. That mill came into production in 1980, and I was with that company when we built it. And at yes. that point, we toll milled for a number of companies, including General Electric had stockpiled a lot of uranium. A number of other companies did, and the reason we did, the White Mesa Mill is a 2,000-ton-a-day mill. It's a big mill. And to fill the mill, you know, you can operate a lot more efficiently if you can operate that continually at 2,000 tons a day. So 
So again, whether they can produce from their own properties, uh, 2,000 tons a day, and I have to ask Mark, you know, you take a look at what's permitted, uh, the mines that are permitted and developed, what is the production capacity of those mines? And then he mentions also taking material from the Navajo Reservation. Good idea. I don't know how soon that happens. I don't know the quantities. So a lot of these things, you know, it's it's what they're doing uh, to fill that mill. Now, maybe they don't want to fill it, but we, the original builder and operator of that mill, felt that operating at capacity was better even if you took in other people's ore under two arrangements. One was toll milling if, you, if the company was big enough. If not, the company took in through an ore purchase agreement ore from the small independent mines in the area. And there were a lot of those in those days because, you know, the uranium price went up and everybody that had a small mine started it, but they didn't have enough to enter into a tolling agreement. Tolling agreement requires a certain amount of ore so that they – because under a tolling arrangement, typically what you do is you shut down the mill, clean the circuits out, and then process the toll ore, and then you clean out the circuits again and then move on with your other ore, your own ore. But a purchase agreement where you simply purchase the ore, then you mix that in with your own ore. So the small miners sold ore to the original energy fuels. That was a big source of the ore for us. Now, there's not nearly as many small miners around, but there are some with permitted and, and developed mines, and, and whether energy fuels will open up the mill and purchase there, or I, I have no idea. Certainly, if I was energy fuels, I would in the short term, because filling that mill and making some money is better for a shareholder than leaving excess capacity. Now, over the next, you know, 10 years, I don't know what the time frame is. You can take a look at energy fuels as, you know, what they've published out there, when additional mines can be permitted and developed. And going into production, then they can fill up the mill. So, you know, if I were energy fuels, I wouldn't sign a 10-year tolling contract because in 10 years, they probably can fill it up with their own ore, and it is better. I will agree with Mark. If you fill, fill the mill with your own ore, you make more money. But an empty mill doesn't make any money. So, I mean, that's why, you know, it's, it's a draw on your, your cash requirements to keep a mill on standby or process at probably less than capacity. So again, you know, we're willing to enter into some kind of arrangement with energy fuels, but we have not yet, and I don't know whether it'll happen. Uh, very, yeah, very well. And I know that Encore uh, is in process as well of, of, of having some discussions related to that. And I know there's a desire to uh, to use that facility. And, and uh, we hope for the sake of everybody involved that uh, you know, these everybody can come to a, an arrangement that, that suits everybody to some degree, and, and everybody is able to uh, create value out of those agreements. So I hope there's a little, well, at least a willingness to work uh, together to some degree. And if not, then there's other options that can be pursued, as you know. Yes. But the other thing is, of course, under this 232 petition, uh, you know, I don't know whether any relief is going to be granted, but I would I would think the Department of Commerce is certainly looking and they did tour the energy fuels uh, mill and mines, I understand, and they did their own assessment of the capacity. The mill's got a large capacity. You know, you know, we were producing 6 million pounds a year, and I think they reported the capacity could be 6 to 8 million pounds through that mill. The mill capacity is not the issue. It's the mine capacity. So how do you fill the mill with 6 million, 7 million, 8 million pounds of, of uranium uh, in the short term, I don't, I don't think energy fuels mines can do that. So the department is going to have to look and say, if they give any, or, you know, if they recommend any relief, it's going to have to be a reasonable amount of relief that could be produced. And so, again, if if energy fuels open the mill to others, that quantity is higher than it is without, uh, you know, independent producers feeding either under purchased ore or a tolling agreement. And that, of course, would all be U.S. uranium, which could be used to fill any quotas. But that's another reason that I would think energy fuels would say, fine, you know, if the quota is high enough, you know, we can't produce it ourselves in the early term, you know, in the next two or three years, maybe 10 years down the road they could, but certainly not, you know, immediately. And if, in fact, <laughs> you get anywhere near the 25% of U.S. consumption they're asking for, that's 12 million pounds a year. Most of that production is going to have to come out of conventional production, and conventional means a uranium mill, and the only one that's operational today is the White Mason Mill. So 
you know, that's the other reason, you know, you would think that Energy Fuels would be looking at that. And again, I haven't been in contact. We we submitted comments, and we were certainly in favor of, of some, you know, relief and protection of the U.S. industry. And so Western submitted comments during the comment period, and we certainly support what Energy and your Energy are doing there. Uh, but I would think the Commerce Department would be asking the question, you know, what is the capacity of the U.S. to produce uranium? George, what what's your thought on, uh, you know, it, it's going to be really difficult to get to an 8 million pounds, 10 million pounds production uh, in the United States this this quickly. Um, so it would it would really require everybody kind of coordinate together and really go after it uh, to be able to get that kind of capacity coming out of the gate post a positive Section 232. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, absolutely. If you look at the production capacity, there are two things. There's one that they say they can produce and one that they really can produce. A White Mesa Mill has a capacity, like I say, six to eight million pounds, but the mines to feed that mill right now don't have the capacity unless you bring in all the independents, including uh, Western. We've got the capacity. You take a look at our past production on the Sunday mine and the others we're producing. We've got the capacity to fill several million pounds of that. Energy fuels can probably, with with the mines that are permitted and developed, they might be able to get up you know, maybe three million pounds. But beyond that, it's going to take you know new mines. Now there's some independents can bring ore to the mine or to the mill also, and maybe that's another million pounds. But the White Mesa Mill is going to be the major source of production, at least in the near term, for any quota because the in situ guys can produce you know a couple million pounds. Uh, a year, you know, if you take a look at UR Energy, even UEC, you know, they they talk about huge capacities, but in the short term, they don't have huge capacities. Maybe each of them can produce a million pounds. And then there's, of course, Peninsula up in Wyoming, who, you know, is trying to change their operations so they can produce. It's not working very well right now. And if they can get their process changed, then they could probably be another million pounds. So again, it, it just takes time. I'm not saying we don't have the, the, we have the resource in the ground, but from the ground to in the can, you know, that that's a minimum of five years uh, to permit it and to develop a mine. So again, I'm saying in the short term, we don't have 12 million pounds of capacity, but we probably could get there fairly quickly if we utilize everybody that's got permitted to develop mines. Right, okay. So moving on uh, to another another topic. So you have a license agreement for use of ablation technology. For people who don't know, can you kind of give an outline of that license, uh, whether or not it's exclusive or non-exclusive, and the and the amount of time under that license? Well, <clears throat> when we acquired Black Range, Black Range had entered into the agreement and acquired the rights under the license. So that was acquired by Black Range Minerals, and now Black Range Minerals is a 100% uh, owned subsidiary of Western Uranium. So the agreements with Black Range, between Black Range and the developers of that technology, and that goes on for about another 18 years, 17 years, although the patents, interestingly, are only good for 17 from the time they were issued. So. Uh, but that that's an agreement to be able to use it ourselves and to license it to other parties. So it's a pretty wide, broad agreement. Uh, we don't own the patents. The patents are owned by, from what I understand, a certain individual that funded that. Uh, we've talked to those people, and but you know, again, they have the right, I suppose, to license it. But interestingly, we have the only prototype machine. We have the only production machine. So, in addition to having right to use the patent without having the machine to actually see how this works. I'm not saying you couldn't get there, but uh, Black Range spent a lot of money developing, you know, especially the commercial machine. And so somebody could license it, I suppose, from who owns the patent today, uh, or they could license it from us, uh, if, if in fact that's what we decide to do. We haven't licensed it to anybody. We've tested a number of ore from different mines, even in Africa. And it works on all virtually all sandstone hosted ore. So you know, okay. ores in the United States are almost all sandstone hosted. And it what right. it does, it's a it's a patented process that basically takes <laughs> some of the waste of the, the material and leaves it at the the mine, just the, the sandstone that doesn't contain mineral. 
And rather than shipping it all to the mill, and it's, it's an environmentally friendly uh, technology because it leaves, uh, you don't put nearly the amount through the mill. And the mill is, of course, the where you get into the, the toxic waste of the tailings. Milling is by far the most environmentally you know, harmful, if you say it is, because of what you're producing. Mining is you're just taking rock out of the ground, and you're not putting any chemicals on it, so you're not changing the makeup. But when you get to the mill and you add the chemicals, then you have the tailings, which are obviously have to be disposed of in a certain certain way. So, you know, the, the right. process is very inexpensive to run uh, and very environmentally, uh, you know, <coughs> helpful, useful for, for cutting down the amount of ore that has to be hauled to a mill and mill. Okay. So there's there's another technology. I think it's coming out of Australia. There's a company in Australia that has a similar technology, but I don't believe it's the same. Um, it, it's I think they call it a, a U upgrade or something like that technology mm -hmm. coming out of Australia. What can you can you explain? I don't know if you're familiar with this other one or not, but can you kind of explain the difference in the process if you are aware of that other one? Well, I've read a little bit about it. Uh, it's a little bit different. The, the ores they intend to use on it are the very, very low grades uh, ores in Africa. And, of course, Mark Chalmers told me that when he was with Paladin, Paladin actually put in an upgrader down there uh, for their project in, in Namibia. And so there are there are technologies out there. Uh, it's the cost of developing, you know, putting in the process and running it. And I don't know much about this new technology, but what Mark commented on, the technology <laughs> that Palin didn't put in, and you can ask Mark about it. He just told me about it, so I'm just kind of repeating what he said. It was very capital intensive to put it in. cost a lot of money, and it cost a lot of money to run it. Okay, and apparently they're using it. Now, the new technology you're talking about from Australia, I'm not that familiar about what it takes and what it does. Uh, I know the ablation technology is very inexpensive to build the machines and very low cost to run based on the tests that we've done. So again, okay. I'm not saying there are not other technologies out there, but it's just, you know, it's all economics. You know, you run right. the most economic one that works the best. So certainly, you know, if you've got very low grade ore, maybe ablation is, is not the way to go. And especially if you have very large quantities, if you're a big open pit mine mining to 3,000 tons a day uh, out of a mine, uh, you know, maybe that's, you know, maybe 5,000 tons a day. I don't know what those mines produce, but that's a large quantity. So maybe ablation is, is not the way to go <clears throat> because, you know, the ablation machines that we've built, you know, fit right in the mine. And, and so they're, and they, they, they would take care of the mines. You might need multiple machines to do like five mines at the Sunday complex. But, you know, again, it's it's the quantity of rock you have to process. And, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, each machine can produce, you know, probably process, you know, 200 tons a day. But it couldn't do 2,000 tons a day. You'd have to have 10 machines to do that. I mean, the size right. that we've built, you know, you can ups, uh, upside this thing and you can just put in bigger components. But then, you know, then the cost goes way up. Right. So, so on the on the ablation technology and the equipment that you have. So, from our understanding, you've uh, you've sought uh, clarification from the NRC and, and are still in the process of getting full approval mm -hmm. from the NRC and local authorities for commercial operation. Mm -hmm. uh, when when do you see that getting resolved? And do you see the ablation technology playing a a pretty big role uh, in the near term? Well, yeah, with, with vanadium mining, <clears throat> you don't have to go through that process because they don't have any authority over vanadium. And people don't understand, in these mines, there's a lot of vanadium that doesn't have any uranium in it. You know, it was bypassed by Union Carbide years ago because it didn't have the, the, the grade of uranium they wanted. So we start to mine with vanadium. You know, the NRC doesn't have anything to do with licensing vanadium mines or, or permitting right. it. So. And I just don't have to do it with a vanadium process or plant. So when we get into uranium, we, you know, that that's something, you know, we believe, you know, that we can we can do it. You know, I don't want to take exception with the state of Colorado. We think they made the wrong decision, and and we think the proper way is to go back to the NRC and have them clarify uh, what should be done in a uranium process or mine with ablation. 
because we do not believe it's a milling process. We believe it's a mining process. And again, we haven't pursued that actively because uranium is, is, is still not economical you know, to mine uranium. Now, if you have uranium vanadium, maybe it is with the high vanadium prices. But we're going to stress the vanadium to start with and start with the machines there rather than uranium. We won't be a uranium mine. We'll be a vanadium mine. Right, right. So uh, switching gears just a little bit, can you can you kind of give us, because I think this is an area of the market that, that people don't really think about, and and you, of course, know very well with your experience, uh, you know, being, being in Colorado, dealing with the interstate issues, whether it's in New Mexico and Arizona, Utah, um, uh, Wyoming. Tell us about kind of the complexities required or the issues required transporting uh, uranium ore specifically uh, between states. So like if you're hauling ore from Colorado to uh, White Mesa Mill in Utah, kind of give us an, an overview of the federal and state licensing requirements and some of the hurdles that you have to kind of fight through. Well, it's, it's about the same hurdle if you're hauling gravel. <laughs> You know, uranium ore, there aren't any licenses. You, you mark the trucks, you have to tarp it. It's a gravel truck. It's like a gravel truck you're hauling the ore in. Okay, and, and the issues, of course, more relate to the weight of the trucks and what you can haul. Utah has a different weight require or allowance than Colorado does, but that's the weight of the truck, whether you're hauling uh, cement, whether you're hauling sand and gravel or, or any other ore. So it, it's because of the different, you know, requirements in states for the use of the roads, but you know there's not no federal regulation on hauling uranium ore between states, and there's none from the states. I got, people so, come so. up with these things; they just don't research it. You know, we, we've hauled ore, you know, in the past from a number of states. You know, and it, you know, it, it moves between the states freely. Hauling in the states is no problem as long as you meet there. You can't go over the weight limit. You know, within a state, sure. you know, and each state right. has different weight limits, so the truck has to meet that. Right. And in most so, states, it has to be tarped. You know, maybe not all of them, because you know, a gravel truck has to be tarped so it doesn't you know blow out and break the windshield of the car following it. So just transporting uranium or, or that has uranium content that does not qualify as a radioactive material transport. Not not like now, of course, if you're hauling a yellow cake, yellow cake has to be hauled. The refined product has to be hauled by a, a, a company that possesses the right to possess yellow cake. Now, that's where you have to have at least a source material license which, because that's the possession of, of, of the refined product. And so the transporters of yellow cake have to have a special license. They do it in a special, you know, constructed uh, van truck. And so they have to be licensed, and they have to be licensed, you know, with the Department of Transportation because they're hauling, and then they do have to have that right to possess it because they physically possess it for a period of time when it's in their truck. And, you know, a yes. mill has the right to possess it. You and I, without having that kind of license, we cannot physically possess yellow cake. So hauling, hauling the ore kind of more or less regardless of, of really uh... – low grades or not, hauling just the ore, the excavation materials is no big deal. Yeah, it's been done for years. You know, it's been hauled interstate for years. Okay, so so on another on another topic, so kind of going back to vanadium just a little bit, because I think this is kind of the hot topic right now for, for Western. So there's been some discussions that, that you might uh, potentially export ore and not process domestically. What is what does the logistics route look like for this and how will it impact your, your margins? Well, you know, again, one of the reasons we're opening up the Sunday mine is simply to take samples of the Sunday mine and ship it to a number of companies that have vanadium processing plants. Uh, and the majority of these are certainly not in the United States because right now a full vanadium plant, there's none operating in the United States. So again, but there are a number of these around the world that process uranium, including the one in Brazil, Largo. You know, they produce, you know, vanadium much the same as, as we would do it if we had a plant in the United States. So these people want to see what we have and see how it works in their processing plant. Simple as that. So samples, you know, that'll be one of the plans, and that's what we announced in our press release. We'll be taking samples once we open the Sunday mine and shipping samples to a number of companies around the world so they can take a look at how this processes in their existing plants. 
And if okay. it's satisfactory, then then potentially there'll be a an agreement signed. We don't have that and, yet, and, but that's the plan. Okay, and so there, so it is still in the cards that that uh, you guys are considering uh, under a commercial production scenario shipping vanadium ore, not not just samples, but shipping vanadium ore outside of the U.S. for processing. Of course, if if there's a contract to do that. If if we enter into contracts at suitable prices and justify starting the mine, you know, that's a possibility. Right. Okay. And, and okay. you've got to look at that. If, if there's no plant in the United States that takes you, or if Energy Fuels doesn't take it, you know, then for us to go into production in the short term, you got to look at alternatives, and that's what we're doing. What kind of price do you like for, for this type of scenario with a vanadium price? Like a $20 price, $25 a pound price? What kind of prices you like? Yeah. Well, you know, again, since we haven't done any independent cost estimates of mine production, we really can't re report our costs, so I can't report what price I would sell for. You know, obviously, part of our program when we open the mine and go in there, we will do some, some cost estimates, some independent cost estimates, okay? And, and then, then it would comply with the SEC rules and the Canadian rules for reporting cost. And then from the cost that we report, you know, obviously it'll be you know, it'll set the price, you know. But again, I can't tell you the price because that implies what my cost is. But I don't want to do that yet. I don't want to violate any of the rules of either the U.S. or Canada in talking about the cost of production. Okay. So moving on to uh, to contracting, uh, what is the status of, of the, uh, the uranium uh, contract that uh, has been mentioned regarding a U.S. utility? What, what kind of, can you give any information on what the volumes and the timing uh, that we're talking about related to that contract? Well, you know, the kind, only thing I can give you what was reported already publicly because of the confidential nature of that contract. Now, obviously, there's, we can't disclose a lot of the terms of that contract, uh, but what was disclosed, I think, uh, it was a two, it was a five-year contract. I think we disclosed that it was with a U.S. utility. I don't think we put in the annual quantities. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a contract that starts in 2018. We weren't obligated to deliver against it because, you know, of the pricing scenario. And we don't have production, obviously. So uh, the contract is sitting there. Okay. And how about, how about on the vanadium side? Um, is there any, is there any interest in these vanadium deals? Are they, are they going to look like a, you know, a short term, you know, one, two, three year contract at a fixed price or is it kind of marked to market? Well, you know, that's the whole issue uh, with the vanadium buyers. And I went to a Ferro Alloy conference in Orlando, Florida about a month ago to, to talk to the vanadium buyers and learn more about it. Uh, vanadium is different than uranium, virtually all traded on, like I say, forward 30-day, 60-day pricing. It's marked to market, and, and so that's what they've been buying, typically. So now to change and, and the structure of contracts is going to be, you know, they're going to have to accept something different if they want it from certain producers, because to start a mine, whether it's us or whether it's, say, Prophecy in Nevada, you're going to have to baseload that. You're not going to start an expecting $20 vanadium and then turn out the Chinese turn back on and it goes to five. So you have to have some, you know, certainty of price for a period of time. Now, whether that's two years or three years, it probably doesn't have to be five years, probably doesn't have to be certainly 10 years, but it depends on what, what you expect and, and, and to recover your cost. Uh, of starting this. Now, if you've got a lot of capital cost with a new mine, I suspect you've got to have a longer-term contract. But we've got, to, we've got to justify starting the mine because the time you mine and ship enough for, you know, a payment, it could be three or four or five months. So, you know, again, the term of the contract doesn't have to be a long-term, but it can't be tied just to the spot price. You know, it wouldn't be prudent to start a mine expecting a certain price and then not get that. You know, I mean, it, right. we don't know. You know, of course, the conference, you know, they're this, the experts on vanadium talked about this cycle is different than one. You can see what's happened. Vanadium's gone up and down. It's because a, a lot of vanadium is produced is from waste material, if you're familiar with that. And so yeah. they can turn on the waste stream when the price is high, and when it's low, they turn them off. So, you know, again, right. vanadium's gone up and down, but he, the speaker said this one he thinks is different. 
not that it's not going to go up and down, but it's not going to drop to the lows that we had before because the market is different and the production scenarios. If, if China continues to cut off, you know, a lot of this production that they had, you've got to make it up somewhere else, and that's higher cost production. The new projects right. that can come on around the around the world are a lot you've got to have capital costs. You've got higher cost of production because the grades of the vanadium are lower. So it's not, you know, it's not rocket science to say we need higher prices to put new production on. And what that price is, you know, it depends on where the project is. And I know that, right. you know, I know people are looking at this right now saying, what will the price eventually level out at to supply the world's demands for vanadium? I don't have right. an answer to that, and I don't know that anybody does because new projects, Prophecy is a good project in Nevada, but I haven't seen what their cost estimates are, and I think they're also right. working on that. So again, well, you know, to bring bring new production on, I'm not sure what you have to have. Right, and and with the uh, you know the vanadium price where it is right now, how does that how does that play into the cost inputs regarding to the the, the battery technology that vanadium is going into the redox uh, batteries, and and so forth. So it's interesting to see how the price will will correspond right. with mm -hmm. with these inputs, and then with with that too. So you you are certainly looking at potential maybe an offtake structuring uh, agreement maybe to kind of get off the ground with vanadium, and then also with the current price where it is and the sustainability of that price, do you think that there would be interested clients who would look at an offer of a vanadium contract at, at severe discounts to market right now? So for example, a, a two-year contract at say, you know, 18 bucks a pound, do you think clients would, would be interested to hear that from you? I've, of course. And you know why we're going to ship samples and I've told these people, you know, you know, we're going to ship you samples, but we expect a contract at a level that justifies production. You know, what that level is, we haven't discussed it with them, but, you know, they all say fine. You know, they're willing to change their contract, the way they price under contracts, especially because they need the material. You know, and if six months something changes and, and uh, big supplies come into the market, maybe that changes. But right now you can see that there's deficits in the supply of vanadium. And whether the redox battery adds significantly to that, you know, that's anybody's guess. You know, it's it's the big promote, you know, battery materials. But you know, they're building some of these. But you know, is it going to be the technology that you know stores a lot of energy? I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, and I listen to people, and people have different opinions on whether the vanadium battery is. It's going to. It's certainly going to be around, but at what what level we just don't know, or I don't know. Right. Okay. Very well. So regarding, uh, we're going to switch gears just a moment to uranium. For well, it's kind of intertwined here with vanadium as well, but because uh, the questions, uh, the the discussion here. So, um, so assuming for, for uranium, tell us tell us what your your main uh, if you were going to produce and sell uranium, is the main target for Western to secure long-term contracts, or would they also consider, uh, you know, at, at current prices or at a price that's sustainable to produce uh, at Western, would you be looking also to sell to, like, trading houses and so forth at spot prices? Well, if we baseload the mine and we're production, producing both uranium and vanadium, and, of course, in the Sunday mine you have the combination as well as you have vanadium that stands alone, if you're producing both and you have a credit, you're selling the vanadium for X dollars per pound and that's covering a lot of your cost, then you can sell the uranium, certainly, because you're going to be pulling it out. You can sell it at, at a different price than maybe a long-term price that you would need if you had only a uranium production plant. So, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it, it's a combination in, in that case. It's a combination of the value you get for the uranium-vanadium. If you get X for vanadium, you can take Y for uranium. It's and, and that's the way it is. And of course, we're one of the few. And Energy Fuels has got the same kind of minds. We're one of the few that have the combination in economical quantities. You know, the prophecies of vanadium mine might have a minor amount of uranium, but not probably enough to recover. So the the mines in in, the, in what we call you know Eurovan Mineral Belt. Those are the mines that historically have had high-grade uranium, relatively high-grade uranium, and high-grade vanadium in, in, in the same 
rock. And so that's why those mines could be economical based on one commodity and then simply sell the second commodity at what be would what would be below economic price for other producers that only produce that commodity. And, and you know, Correct. it's no difference. If you've got a gold and a silver mine, you've got two products you produce, and so you sell the gold to something and you sell the silver, and it, the combination theoretically makes you a profit. Well, that's the same with uranium vanadium mines. Yeah, under, understood. So, so let's 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 do a scenario here. So let's let's just uh, speculate that vanadium goes back down to five dollars a pound, and with that, at what if vanadium was not, more or less a non-issue um, based on this scenario? At what price would you be highly interested in in starting to produce uh, uranium and and sell uranium under contracts? If if you discount and say nothing for vanadium, okay, so that's you know that's what other producers in the U.S. have talked about the pricing needed uh, for production in the U.S. and it probably starts somewhere in the fifty dollars and somewhere between fifty and seventy. You know, for okay. that's not just that's not just Western, but that's what everybody in the United States needs. You know, if you're only producing uranium, okay, and and that's probably we're probably at the low range of that. Uh, because of our grades in the mines, and because they're they're small underground, you know, dry mines, and and so you know again, certainly there are mines that big open pit mines, you know, that could be lower cost production, but they're not ready to go and they're not permitted. You know, you, you see some estimates. The Sheep Mountain project in Wyoming, which is owned by Energy Fuels, there's a cost estimate done by Titan, you know, and they actually published this, uh, what it would cost to start. And process you know that, and and I, I think that's probably one of the lower costs, but it's it's not ready to go. But if you believe the cost that Titan came up with, and you know again, I, I that was an independent analysis done some years ago. You know they probably could produce at fifty to sixty dollars a pound. Uh, but again, you know they don't have a mill. <laughs> you know if you had a mill close by. Like the, the real mill, which is not far, but it's not operational, and of course, Energy Fuels doesn't own it. Now, if, if that mine came into production, that could be a good producer, if, especially if you have a mill uh, fairly close, such as the real mill. Okay, so uh, so we already kind of covered the utility the utility contract that's in place. Um, has Western obtained any letters of intent from any other customers? For or purchases regarding vanadium. No, no. If okay. we had, we would announce it. Okay. Kind of moving back to the Section 232 petition. Uh, what outcome do you believe will occur with Section 232? And if there is a negative outcome, does that slow down your timeline? Uh, if there's a negative, if there's no relief under the 232, I think it slows everybody's timeline down because I think world uranium prices. No, they've been going up, and I think they're going to go up, you know, to get the production the world needs. But, you know, you take a look at all the analysts that cover this and have all the data. They say, okay, it's probably 2022, 2023, when the world price recovers to a point where you can turn on, for instance, the Paladin mine in Africa or a new production. You know, what, where does Cameco turn back on, you know, up in, in Canada? You know, these are these are the prices that they basically said there's got to be a higher price. And, you know, what that is, they've never really said. But you suspect that the world price is going to go up uh, over a period of time so that new mines can come on and ones that are in standby can be turned on. Now, I think that price probably comes in the early 2000, you know, period 22, maybe. And so that's what, three or four years from now. And, and so that slows everybody down. You know, until you actually get the price, you don't do these things. Cameco will be the leader. Cameco will be out contracting and searching for the contracts at, at, at a price that they like to start, you know, start back up. And so when that happens, you know, I think Cameco is the leading producer in the world, not by quantity, but certainly by knowledge of the market. They've been around a long time. They've contracted around the world. And so watch what Cameco does. But again, I, I, I don't know when that happens, but it slows down everybody until that price comes. And again, then the lowest cost producers are going to be the first in to, to do the contracts. But nobody's going to sign a $30 fixed price contract because everybody expects the price to go up. 
and probably hardly anybody makes money. I'm not saying nobody makes money at $30 uranium price, but, you know, why wouldn't they be producing today? Why would Cameco shut down if they like $30? Uh, Kazakhstan, you know, I don't know what their cost is. They say it's 20 and maybe they make money at $30. But, again, you know, they can't produce the whole amount the world needs. So, you know, I, I think without 232 uh, some relief under that. I think the U.S. industry is in for two or three or four more years of, of depressed prices. And of course, one of the things the petition says is maybe we can't even hold on that long. These companies that have been in, you know, holding on since 2005, 2006 have been losing money constantly. Just look at the balance sheets of the UECs, the energy fuels, and the way they've stayed in business, they've raised capital, you know, from the investors. And they haven't made any money because the prices have been too low. So how long can a company sustain losses and expect the capital market to keep funding them? That's what the petition basically says. We can't last, you know, until the world price comes back. And there won't be a U.S. industry unless you give us some relief now. Now, whether that's true or not, that's what the petition seems to say. Now, some will hold on if, if, if you can continue to raise money as these companies have done, and then they can stick around. But what if capital dries up? Take a look at the holding costs of some of these companies. And we've got relatively low holding costs. And, you know, you can take a look at our financials. We still burn about a million dollars a year. And we've had small capital right. raises to cover that. But the other companies are burning substantially more money than we are. And have had right. that well, yeah. losses for years. So, you know, that's I guess that's the the issue. How long can the companies hold on unless they can get higher uranium prices in the in the short term? Yeah, and I'll make a few comments in that regard. I mean, certainly, you know, earlier earlier you said you're you're making you know fifteen taking fifteen thousand dollars a month, which you know adds up to you know one eighty per year if my math is right. And so you know, when you look at some of these other companies. Uh, they have they have instead of you know again instead of mining uranium in the ground <laughs> they've they've mined mine the shareholders and so the shareholders and the investors have more or less uh, foot the bill for these companies to remain in their uh, kind of reckless uh, ways with regards to compensation so I, I got to give you a little bit of credit uh, for for being along uh, the lower quartile of those uh, compensations re related to these companies because I can think of a number of other companies that have uh, way overpaid themselves in bad times <laughs> and and it's sad it's shameful and uh they should be ashamed of themselves um and so anyway moving on um so i, I just uh, comments on 232 uh you know with the the trump administration in place uh the department of energy uh, status um the issues related to energy independence with uh, other other countries like russia and so forth and and some of these discussions about uh, even in even in Europe, Europe's uh, dependencies upon Russian energy sources, um, and the fact that the United States has no fuel cycle infrastructure in place in the United States anymore, uh, and there's very very little left. Uh, you know, with the protectionist strategies of the current administration, um, you know, it would be highly highly unlikely uh, that there is nothing comes out of this 232. I, I do believe there'll be some kind of positive response. And we we had talked to Walter Coles Jr. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago about this, and he's very optimistic uh, related to uh, how forceful the administration uh, could become with uh, relation to kind of rejuvenating the uranium business in the United States. So I think there's a number of people that increasingly believe that there will be a pretty positive outcome come out of this. And, and really, quite honestly, there's no better guy in office right now in the Department of Energy and at the White House uh, that would promote these types of uh, actions. So it's it's going to be very interesting to see how the next six months plays out. I agree with you, totally. I think this is a crucial time for the industry. And I think under this administration, it's got a pretty good shot at, at, at surviving. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to cut out the Canadians or the Australians, but, you know, obviously it's got to come from somewhere. And where does it, you know, the cuts come from? Uh, maybe, maybe they're selective and maybe they cut out the Russians. I don't know. But I agree with you. I agree, you know, with, with the industry that I think we need it. And I think there is going to be relief coming. You know, I'm optimistic or I wouldn't be in this industry. You know, to be a miner, you got to be optimistic. 
to be a uranium miner, you really got to be optimistic. And and so I, you know, again, the industry's held on, and I and I think some relief is coming. How soon and how much, you know, I don't know. Right. So uh, on another back to ablation, is there is there any revenue expected from from licensing out relicensing of the ablation technology? Um, is there any any royalties or licensing that you see in the near term, or is this something that Western's going to hold on to uh, internally? Well, you know, again, there's there's debate as to whether you ought to license it. You know, you make a lot more money just like a mill by processing your own material. And so if we hold this technology very close, potentially the value of Western, you know, is substantially higher, especially if a big company decides to come in and buy this company. Uh, if we've licensed it around the world for a, a number of producers, then you, you don't have that somewhat advantage. And at this point, nobody's knocking our door down because what happens, all the uranium producers that want it, they want to pay when they start producing. <laughs> Nobody's producing, so we wouldn't have any revenue anyway if we signed licensing agreements because virtually none of them are, you know, prepared to pay now and, and, and produce later. You know, they pay a, a royalty or a licensing fee against production. That's been the discussion. So, again, we're hearing some interesting things out there as I make the rounds with investors about how we should develop ablation whether we're, whether we should license it or whether we should keep it, you know, as as our technology, because potentially the value of ablation is a lot higher if you're processing your own material. You know, it's just like energy fuels in their uranium mill; they make more money processing their own material to the extent they can. So in our case, you know, we don't have anybody knocking down the door saying we got to have it right now because nobody's in production, especially with uranium. And so until the price goes higher, even ablation isn't going to justify their operations. So we've not licensed it, and if the revenue stream would come primarily from licensing fees when they produce. And so we don't have any licenses signed, nor would we sign licenses until they get closer to production. We haven't decided which way to go. There's discussion going on internally. You know, ablation, as I, I mentioned works for other minerals, not just uranium, vanadium, but sandstone-hosted minerals it works on. So there could be other uh, industries that could be interested in this. Now, we are uh, uranium, vanadium. We don't have any other resources and right now don't intend to go into that, but it certainly could be considered by other mining companies. Now, again, keeping the ablation technology where it is now doesn't make us any money but it doesn't, you know, impair the, the future value of Western, quite frankly, might really be related to the value of inflation. And so we're, we're holding that back until we really get a better feel for how to really optimize the value of ablation to Western. Very well. Uh, so uh, moving back to compensation for just a moment. So <clears throat> obviously with the the, uh, the compensation that you guys are doing there, it's it's quite it is quite low, um, and you guys have done some different uh, rewards, option incentives. Um, so can you exp uh, just mention for the audience the, the recent options plan that was put in place and the kind of short-term six-month vesting time? Well, the options were granted to my board of directors, as you see in the press release. I didn't take any of those options. You know, I need to motivate, motivate and keep my people because they're not highly paid. So those options went to the board and to the two people involved, the operations guy and my CFO. And they're relatively short. You know, there's a, there's a vesting period, as you say, really relatively short vesting period. Uh, and those options, you know, could very well be in the money, you know, if our share price continues to move. But the whole reason for options is to, you know, is not is to motivate people and give them compensation for what they've done in the past. And then so since we don't pay, you know, huge amounts out, we don't have bonuses, we don't have all that. Options are one way to recognize what your people are doing for you. And since, you know, that, that's the reason I, you know, wanted the options to be issued. We've only got two other board members other than myself. They both got options, and then we've got our two operating and then we had one consultant that got some options so that was okay. the purpose of the options and, and and options are something that companies issue you know from time to time you know and so those were the uh, the last options we issued yeah very well P appreciate the explanation 
Um, so, uh, related to contract miners, uh, have you guys have you guys started the procurement process uh, for contract mining uh, folks to give you proposals, technical proposals on on the work at Sunday Mine, or is that something that's maybe coming in the next uh, you know six six months a year? Well, we've already started the discussion. There's a number of contractors out there that are interested in it, uh, and so we certainly started the discussion. Uh, you know, because you know we're going to open the mine initially. We'll do it ourselves. We're not in production, but when we open the Sunday mine, it'll be with a few employees. Uh, we may contract for those employees through a contracting service, but it will not be full contracting mining. Uh, if you go into production, then you're probably better off using a contract. We don't have a great deal of mining equipment, and to gear up to mine, you would have to buy underground trucks and underground loaders and drills and all kinds of equipment. And so the contractors already have this equipment and Sunday mine was operated by two contractors the last time they operated. And so the contractors brought their equipment and moved in. They charge you a bit more per ton to produce it, but that's a way to keep your capital costs low is use contractors. So we certainly know the contractors. We're talking to them. Uh, but when we initially start, probably will not be with contractors, but we'll be with a very limited number of people because we're, we're going into exploration. We're going into definition of what's there. Not We yes. might produce a little bit, but, you know, just like Energy Fuels announced that what they did at the LaSalle complex, we're doing the same thing, you know, because, you know, the mine's the same and it needs the same kind of assessment. And yes. so that's, okay. we won't, we won't use contractors for that because there's no, major tonnages to be moved and typically the contractor works on a tonnage basis. I suppose you could do it on a time and material basis, but when they're production oriented, they do it on a, a ton basis. Right. Um, so, so how about, uh, you mentioned a couple contractors that had operated there before. Are those contractors, would they be part of the evaluation process to select a mining contractor this time around? Certainly. Certainly. Okay. Yes. As well as several others that were not involved. I've had calls from a number of them. When the press release went out, we intend to open the mine. You know, there's a number of contractors who giving me a call. So, you know, there's there's mining contractors that have the ability and, and to start fairly quickly at these small mines. These are not huge mines that require huge amounts of equipment or employees. So, they all seem to be interested in in additional contracts. Okay. So, George, moving on, we're just about wrapped up here. I know you got better things to do. Um, so, you've been in the business a long time. We know uh, you like your own company, Western, uh, but is there any other name out there, or maybe two names uh, in the uranium business globally that you like and respect at this point? You know, I, I respect virtually all the uranium companies out there that have been able to hold on and stay in business. You know, I, when I started Energy Fuels in 2005 and six, you know how many uranium companies there were? Virtually all of them are gone. So everybody that's been able to hold on, I respect. You know, they've, they've got, some of them are exploration, some of them are, but, you know, I wouldn't pick one or two because I think anybody that, well, I, you know, I think, you know, I don't want to pick one or two or five. I respect all the companies that have been able to hold on and, and, and stay in the business waiting for the, the turn and so you know I wouldn't want to say one or two or three or five because I, I think all of them basically that held on this long have got merit whether exploration companies or whether they're near-term producers or whether they are uh, producers that have been in production so you know for for investors you need to take a look at you know each company and what their merits are and I don't recommend you know I, it's not my you know I, I can't recommend one or two I wouldn't be you know, in a position to say buy this one or that one, because I think they all have merit in a different way. Okay. So what, uh, what are your plans uh, for 2019 and where do you see the uranium market going? Well, I, I, I some relief coming in 2019 from the 232. And I think that'll move a, a number of producers towards production or into production. And we're no different than that. I think with, with higher uranium prices, we can move into production fairly quickly. Now, if we don't get any relief from the 232 petition, then I don't think the price 
goes up until maybe 2022. So we continue in a holding pattern. Our costs are relatively low. As long as we can raise the capital to hold on, I see, you know, it's in a holding pattern. But what, what we're hoping for and what we're planning for is some relief from the 232 and some recovery in the uranium price. And so with the opening of the mine for kind of an evaluation or an exploration phase, moving then into a production phase, assuming we do get higher uranium prices during 2019 or early 2020. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds great. And of course, you've got the, the vanadium as kind of a separate separate situation that you're, you're working on and progressing on. Uh, so give, give uh, the audience, uh, you know, on the vanadium side for 2019, uh, kind of what's, what's the plan? You're going you know, to open up the, the complex there at Sunday and uh, take some samples. And then uh, what, are you, what else are you going to do in 2019? Well, obviously, we're going to ship samples to prospective customers. We're going to we're going to high grade vanadium ore in there that we believe is in there. Uh, we have samples of it when we opened, but to do a complete assessment and a mine plan, and possibly have the cost estimate done by an independent and confirmed, so that we can announce what the economics of the mine are. So those are the goals for 2019: uh, open up the mine, uh, design the mine plan. For the vanadium mining, because you know, assuming we have a contract at a reasonable price, uh, we could move into production. So that that's the 2019 plan. Production maybe, if everything works out, maybe late 19, 2019. Certainly not in the first half of 19, but the second half of 19, moving into vanadium production, with certain things being satisfied. So how can potential and interested investors get more information and how can they contact Western? Well, certainly my contact uh, information is on our website. It's in our materials. I'm open always to talk to shareholders or prospective investors. Uh, I spend a lot of my time doing that and it doesn't make any difference whether you own 10 or 10 million shares. I have the same time for everybody. And we don't have a separate IR person, so that falls on me and that's part of the thing that I do. So they can certainly call me at any time. I've got an email address. I'll be in contact, and I'd be happy to talk with any of the current investors or prospective investors. Uh, George, can you tell investors uh, the website for Western? Yes, it's www.western-uranium.com. Okay, great. Well, George, it's been fun, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you.